0: Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. Return to the Sabbath by Robert Block 1. It's not the kind of story that the columnists like to print. It's not the yarn press agents love to tell. When I was still in the public relations department at the studio, they wouldn't let me break it. I knew better than to try, for no paper would print such a tale. We publicity men must present Hollywood as a gay place—a world of glamour and stardust. We capture only the light, but underneath the light there must always be shadows. I've always known that. It's been my job to gloss over those shadows for years, but the events of which I speak form a disturbing pattern too strange to be withheld. The shadow of these incidents is not human. It's been the cursed weight of the whole affair that has proved my own mental undoing. That's why I resigned from the studio post, I guess. I wanted to forget, if I could. And now I know that the only way to relieve my mind is to tell the story. I must break the yarn, come what may, then perhaps I can forget Carl Jawler's eyes. The affair dates back to one September evening, almost three years ago— Les Kincaid and I were slamming down on Main Street in Los Angeles that night. Les is an assistant producer up at the studio, and there was some purpose in his visit. He was looking for authentic types to fill minor roles in a gangster film he was doing. Les was peculiar that way. He preferred the real article rather than the casting bureau's ready-made imitations. We'd been wandering around for some time, as I recall, past the great stone chows that guard the narrow alleys of Chinatown. "'over through the tourist trap that is Olvera Street, and back along the flop-houses of Lower Main. We walked by the cheap burlesque houses, eyeing the insolent Filipinos that sauntered past, and jostling our way through the usual Saturday night slumming parties. We were both rather weary of it all—that's why, I suppose, the dingy little theatre appealed to us. "'Let's go in and sit down for a while,' Les suggested. "'I'm tired.' Even a Main Street burlesque show has seats in it, and I felt ready for a nap. The calipage of the stage attraction did not appeal to me, but I acceded to the suggestion and purchased our tickets. We entered, sat down, suffered through two striptease dances, an incredibly ancient blackout sketch, and a grand finale. Then, as is the custom in such places, the stage darkened and the screen flickered into life. We got ready for our doze then. The pictures shown in these houses are usually ancient specimens of the quickie variety, fillers provided to clear the house. As the first blaring notes of the soundtrack heralded the title of the opus, I closed my eyes, slouched lower in my seat, and mentally beckoned to Morpheus. I was jerked back to reality by a sharp dig in the ribs. Les was nudging me, and whispering. "'Look at this,' he murmured, prodding my reluctant body into wakefulness ever see anything like it?" I glanced up at the screen. What I expected to find I do not know, but I saw—horror. There was a country graveyard, shadowed by ancient trees through which flickered rays of mildewed moonlight. It was an old graveyard, with rotting headstones set in grotesque angles as they leered up at the midnight sky. The camera cut down on one grave—a fresh one. The music on the soundtrack grew louder, and cursed climax—but I forgot camera and film as I watched. That grave was reality—hideous reality! The grave was moving! The earth beside the headstone was heaving and churning, as though it were being dug out—not from above, but from below. It quaked upward ever so slowly, terribly. Little clods fell. The sword pulsed out in a steady stream, and little rills of earth kept falling in the moonlight as though there was something clawing the dirt away—something clawing from beneath. That something—it would soon appear, and I began to be afraid. I—I—didn't want to see what it was. The clawing from below was not natural—it held a purpose not altogether human. Yet I had to look—I had to see him—it—emerge. The sod cascaded in a mound, and then I was staring at the edge of the grave. Looking down at the black hole that gaped like a corpse mouth in the moonlight, something was coming out. Something slithered through that fissure, fumbled at the side of the opening. It clutched the ground above the grave, and in the baleful beams of that demon's moon, I knew it to be a human hand—a thin, white human hand that held but half its flesh—the hand of a lich, a skeleton claw. A second talon gripped the other side of the excavation top, and now, slowly, insidiously, arms emerged naked, fleshless arms. They crawled across the earth sides like leprous white serpents, the arms of a cadaver, a rising cadaver. It was pulling itself up, and as it emerged, a cloud fell across the moon path. The light faded to shadows as the bulky head and shoulders came into view one could see nothing, and one was thankful. But the cloud was falling away from the moon now. In a second the face would be revealed—the face of the thing from the grave—the resurrected visage of that which should be rotted in death. What would it be? The shadows fell back. The figure rose out of the grave, and the face turned toward me. I looked and saw. Well, you've been to horror pictures. You know what one usually sees the ape-man, or the maniac, or the death's head—the papier-mâché grotesquerie of the make-up artist—the skull of the dead. I saw none of that. Instead, there was horror. It was the face of a child, I thought, at first—no, not a child, but a man with a child's soul—the face of a poet, perhaps, unwrinkled and calm. Long hair framed a high forehead, crescent eyebrows tilted over closed lids. The nose and mouth were thin and finely chiselled. Over the entire countenance was written an unearthly piece. It was as though the man were in a sleep of somnambulism, or catalepsy, and then the face grew larger, the moonlight brighter, and I saw more. The sharper light disclosed tiny touches of evil. The thin lips were fretted, maggot-kissed. The nose had crumbled at the nostrils. The forehead was flaked with putrefaction, and the dark hair was dead, encrusted with slime. There were shadows in the bony ridges beneath the closed eyes. Even now, the skeletal arms were up, and bony fingers brushed at those dead pits as the rotted lids fluttered apart. The eyes opened. They were wide, staring, flaming, and in them was the grave. They were eyes that had closed in death and opened in the coffin under earth. They were eyes that had seen the body rot and the soul depart to mingle in worm-raven darkness below. They were eyes that held an alien life—a life so dreadful as to animate the cadaver's body and force it to claw its way back to outer earth. They were hungry eyes, triumphant now, as they gazed in graveyard moonlight on a world they had never known before. They hungered for the world, as only death can hunger for life— And they blazed out of the corpse's pallid face in icy joy. Then the cadaver began to walk. It lurched between the graves, lumbered before ancient tombs. It shambled through the forest night until it reached a road. Then it turned up that road slowly, slowly, and the hunger in those eyes flamed again as the lights of a city flared below. Death was preparing to mingle with men, Two. I sat through all this, entranced. Only a few minutes had elapsed, but I felt as though uncounted ages had passed unheeded. The film went on. Les and I didn't exchange a word, but we watched. The plot was rather routine after that. The dead man was a scientist, whose wife had been stolen from him by a young doctor. The doctor had tended him in his last illness, and unwittingly administered a powerful narcotic with cataleptic effects. The dialogue was foreign, and I could not place it. All of the actors were unfamiliar to me, and the setting and photography was quite unusual—unorthodox treatment as in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and other psychological films. There was one scene where the living dead man became enthroned as archpriest at a black mass ceremonial, and there was a little child, his eyes as he plunged the knife. He kept decaying throughout the film. The black mass worshippers knew him as an emissary of Satan, and they kidnapped the wife as sacrifice for his own resurrection. The scene with the hysterical woman, when she saw and recognized her husband for the first time, and the deep, evil whispering voice in which he revealed his secret to her. The final pursuit— of the devil-worshippers to the great altar-stone in the mountains—the death of the resurrected one. Almost a skeleton, in fact now, riddled by bullets and shot from the weapons of the doctor and his neighbours, the dead one crumbled and fell from his seat on the altar-stone, and as those eyes glazed in second death, the deep voice boomed out in a prayer to Saturnus. The lich crawled across the ground to the ritual fire, drew painfully erect, and tottered into the flames, and as it stood weaving for a moment in the blaze, the lips moved again in infernal prayer, and the eyes implored not the skies, but the earth. The ground opened in a final flash of fire, and the charred corpse fell through. The master claimed his own. It was grotesque, almost a fairy tale in its triteness. When the film had flickered off and the orchestra blared the opening for the next— flesh show, we rose in our seats, conscious once more of our surroundings. The rest of the mongrel audience seemed to be in a stupor almost equal to our own. Wide-eyed Japanese sat, staring in the darkness. Filipinos muttered covertly to one another. Even the drunken labourers seemed incapable of greeting the grand opening with their usual ribald hoots. Trite and grotesque the plot of the film may have been, but the actor who played the lead had instilled it with ghastly reality." He had been dead—his eyes knew—and the voice was the voice of Lazarus awakened. Les and I had no need to exchange words. We both felt it. I followed him silently, as he went up the stairs to the manager's office. Edward Relch was glowering over the desk. He showed no pleasure at seeing us barge in. When Les asked him where he had procured the film for this evening, and what its name was, he opened his mouth and emitted a cascade of curses we learned that Return to the Sabbath had been sent over by a cheap agency from out Inglewood Way, that a western had been expected, and the damned foreign junk substituted by mistake. A hell of a picture this was, for a girl show. Gave the audience the lousy creeps, and it wasn't even in English—stinking imported films. It was some time before we managed to extract the name of the agency from the manager's profane lips, but five minutes after that, Les Kincaid was on the phone speaking to the head of the agency. An hour later, we were out at the office. The next morning, Kincaid went in to see the big boss, and the following day, I was told to announce for publication that Carl Jawler, the Austrian horror star, had been signed by cable to our studio, and he was leaving at once for the United States. 3. It was a stroke of genius on Kincaid's part. We all felt that way about the matter. Horror pictures were on the way in. Karloff and Lugosi were turning out their early numbers over at Universal and grossing big. Lionel Atwill was doing his usual villainy on several lots, and profitably so. Peter Lorre, the peer of them all, had just been signed for American films after his sensational performances as the psychopathic murderer in M— and his gruesome spy portrayal in The Man Who Knew Too Much. And we knew that Carl Jawler topped them all. If the fans were really sincere in their liking for the macabre, they were going to get the genuine article. Not since Lon Chaney had I seen such consummate artistry. Certainly this man was Chaney's superior in that he had a sincerity which outdistanced the horror of mere make-up tricks. I printed these items, gave all the build-up I could, but after the initial announcements, I was stopped dead. Everything could happen too swiftly. We knew nothing about this Manjola, really. Subsequent cables to Austrian and German studios failed to disclose any information about the fellow's private life. He had evidently never played in any film prior to return to the Sabbath. He was utterly unknown. The film had never been shown greatly abroad and it was only by mistake that the Inglewood Agency has obtained a copy and run it here in the United States. Audience reaction could not be learned, and the film was not scheduled for general release unless English titles could be dubbed in. I was up a stump. Here we had the find of the year, and I couldn't get enough material out to make it known. We expected Carl Jawler to arrive in two weeks, however. I was told to get to work on him as soon as he got in— and flood the news agencies with stories. Three of our best writers were working on a special production for him already—the big boss meant to handle it himself. It would be similar to the foreign film, for that return from the dead sequence must be included. Jawler arrived on October 7th. He put up at a hotel. The studio sent down its usual welcoming committee, took him out to the lot for formal testing, then turned him over to me— I met the man for the first time in the little dressing-room they had assigned him. I'll never forget that afternoon of our first meeting, or my first sight of him as I entered the door. What I expected to see I don't know, but what I did see amazed me, for Carl Jawler was the dead-alive man of the screen in life. The features were not fretted, of course, but he was tall, and almost as cadaverously thin as in his role—his face was pallid, and his eyes blue-circled, and the eyes were the dead eyes of the movie, the deep, knowing eyes. The booming voice greeted me in hesitant English. Jawler smiled with his lips at my obvious discomfiture, but the expression of the eyes never varied in their alien strangeness. Somewhat hesitantly, I explained my office and my errand. "'No publicity,' Jawler intoned. "'I do not wish to make known what is affairs of mine own doing.' I gave him the usual arguments. How much he understood, I cannot say, but he was adamant. I learned only little, that he had been born in Prague, lived in wealth until the upheavals of the European Depression, and entered film work only to please a director friend of his. This director had made the picture in which Jawler played, for private showings only. By mischance, a print had been released, and copied for general circulation. It had all been a mistake. However, The American film offer had come opportunely since Jawler wanted to leave Austria at once. "'After the film appear, I am in bad lights with my... friends,' he explained, slowly. "'They do not wish it to be shown, that... ceremony.' "'The Black Mass?' I asked. "'Your... friends?' "'Yes. The worship of Lucifer. It was real, you know.' "'Was he joking?' "'No. I couldn't doubt the man's sincerity.' There was no room for mirth in those alien eyes, and then I knew what he meant, what he so casually revealed. He had been a devil worshipper himself, he and that director. They had made the film and meant it for private display in their own occult circles. No wonder he sought escape abroad. It was incredible, save that I knew Europe and the dark northern mind. The worship of evil continues today in Budapest, Prague, Berlin." and he, Carl Jola, the horror actor, admitted to being one of them. What a story, I thought, and then I realised that it could, of course, never be printed. A horror star admitting belief in the parts he played? Absurd! All the features about Boris Karloff played up the fact that he was a gentleman who found true peace in raising a garden. Lugosi was pictured as a sensible neurotic, tortured by the roles he played in the films— Atwill was a socialite and a stage star, and Peter Laurie was always written up as being gentle as a lamb, a quiet student whose ambition was to play comedy parts. No, it would never do to break the story of Jawler's devil-worship, and he was so damnably reticent about his private affairs. I sought out Kincaid after the termination of our unsatisfactory interview. I told him what I had encountered, and asked for advice. He gave it. "'The old Lon Chaney line,' he counseled. "'Mystery Man. We say nothing about him until the picture's released. After that, I have a hunch things will work out for themselves. The fellow is a marvel, so don't bother about stories until the film is canned.' Consequently, I abandoned publicity efforts in Carl Jowler's direction. Now, I am very glad I did, sir, for there is no one to remember his name or suspect the horror that was soon to follow.' Four The script was finished. The front office approved. Stage four was under construction. The casting director got busy. Jawler was at the studio every day. Kincaid himself was teaching him English. The part was one in which very few words were needed, and Jawler proved a brilliant pupil, according to Les. but Les was not as pleased as he should have been about it all. He came to me one day about a week before production and unburdened himself. He strove to speak lightly about the affair, but I could tell that he felt worried. The gist of his story was very simple. Jawler was behaving strangely. He had had trouble with the front office, he refused to give the studio his living address, and it was known that he had checked out from his hotel several days after first arriving in Hollywood. Nor was that all. He wouldn't talk about his part, or volunteer any information about interpretation— He seemed to be quite uninterested, admitting frankly to Kincaid that his only reason for signing a contract was to leave Europe. He told Kincaid what he had told me—about the devil worshippers—and he hinted at more. He spoke of being followed, muttered about avengers and hunters who waited. He seemed to feel that the witch-cult was angry at him for the violation of secrets, and held him responsible for the release of Return to the Sabbath. That, he explained— was why he would not give his address, nor speak of his past life for publication. That is why he must use very heavy makeup in his film debut here. He felt at times as though he were being watched or followed. There were many foreigners here. Too many. What the devil can I do with a man like that? Kincaid exploded after he had explained this to me. He's insane, or a fool, and I confess that he's too much like his screen character to please me a damned casual way in which he professes to have dabbled in devil-worship and sorcery. He believes all this, and, well, I'll tell you the truth. I came here today because of the last thing he spoke of to me this morning. He came down to the office. At first, when he walked in, I didn't know him. The dark glasses and muffler helped, of course, but he himself had changed. He was trembling and walked with a stoop, and when he spoke, his voice was like a groan. He showed me this— Kincaid handed me the clipping. It was from the London Times, through European Press Dispatches, a short paragraph giving an account of the death of Fritz Omen, the Austrian film director. He had been found strangled in a Paris garret, and his body had been frightfully mutilated. It mentioned an inverted cross branded on his stomach above the ripped entrails. Police were seeking the murderer. I handed the clipping back in silence. "'So what?' I asked, but I would already guessed his answer. Fritz Omen, Kincaid said, slowly, was the director of the picture in which Carl Jorla played. The director, who with Jorla knew the devil worshippers. Jorla says that he fled to Paris and that they sought him out. I was silent. Mess, grunted Kincaid. I've offered Jorla police protection, and he's refused. I can't coerce him under the terms of our contract— As long as he plays the part, he's secure with us. But he has the jitters, and I'm getting them." He stormed out. I couldn't help him. I sat thinking of Carl Jola, who believed in devil gods, worshipped, and betrayed them. And I could have smiled at the absurdity of it all if I hadn't seen the man on the screen and watched his evil eyes. He knew! It was then that I began to feel thankful we had not given Jola any publicity. I had a hunch— During the next few days, I saw but seldom. The rumours, however, began to trickle in. There had been an influx of foreign sightseers at the studio gates. Someone had attempted to crash through the barriers in a racing car. An extra, in a mob scene over on Lot 6, had been found carrying an automatic beneath his vest. When apprehended, he had been lurking under the executive office windows. They had taken him down to headquarters— and so far the man had refused to talk. He was a German. Jawler came to the studios every day in a shuttered car. He was bundled up to the eyes. He trembled constantly. His English lessons went badly. He spoke to no one. He had hired two men to ride with him in his car. They were armed. A few days later, news came that the German extra had talked. He was evidently a pathological case. He babbled wildly of a black cult of Lucifer, known to some of the foreigners around town. It was a secret society purporting to worship the devil, with vague connections in the mother countries. He had been chosen to avenge a wrong. More than that he dared not say, but he did give an address where the police might find cult headquarters. The place, a dingy house in Glendale, was quite deserted, of course. It was a queer old house, with a secret cellar beneath the basement but everything seemed to have been abandoned. The man was being held for examination by an alienist. I heard this report with deep misgivings. I knew something of Los Angeles's and Hollywood's heterogeneous foreign population. God knows, Southern California has attracted mystics and occultists from all over the world. I've even heard rumors about stars being mixed up in unsavory secret societies—things one would never dare to admit in print and Jawler was afraid. That afternoon I tried to trail his black car as it left the studio for his mysterious home, but I lost the track in the winding reaches of Topanga Canyon. It had disappeared into the secret twilight of the Purple Hills, and I knew then that there was nothing I could do. Jawler had his own defences, and if they failed, we at the studio could not help. That was the evening he disappeared—at least, He did not show up the next morning at the studio, and production was to start in two days. We heard about it. The boss and Kincaid were frantic. The police were called in, and I did my best to hush things up. When Jawler did not appear the following morning, I went to Kincaid and told him about my following the cart to Panga Canyon. The police went to work. Next morning was production. We spent a sleepless night of fruitless vigil—there was no word. Morning came and there was unspoken dread in Kincaid's eyes as he faced me across the office table. Eight o'clock. We got up and walked silently across the lot to the studio cafeteria. Black coffee was badly needed. We hadn't had a police report for hours. We passed stage four, where the jawler crew was at work. The noise of hammers was mockery. Jawler, we felt, would never face a camera today, if ever. Bless kind, the director of the untitled horror opus, came out of the stage office as we passed. His paunchy body quivered as he grasped Kincaid's lapels and piped, "'Any news?' Kincaid shook his head slowly. Bleskine thrust a cigar into his tense mouth. "'We're shooting ahead,' he snapped. "'We'll shoot around, Jorla. If he doesn't show up when we finish the scenes in which he won't appear, we'll get another actor. But we can't wait.' The squat director bustled back to the stage. Moved by a sudden impulse, Kincaid grasped my arm and propelled me after Bleskine's waddling form. "'Let's see the opening shots,' he suggested. "'I want to see what kind of story they've given him.' We entered stage four. A gothic castle, the ancestral home of Baron Almo. A dark, gloomy stone crypt of spidery horror, cobwebbed, dust-shrouded, deserted by men and given over to the rats by day and the unearthly horrors that crept by night. An altar stood by the crypt, an altar of evil, the great black stone on which the ancient Baron Almo and his devil cult had held their sacrifices. Now, in the pit beneath the altar, the Baron lay buried. Such was the legend. According to the first shot scheduled, Sylvia Channing, the heroine, was exploring the castle. She had inherited the place— and taken it over with her young husband. In this scene, she was to see the altar for the first time, read the inscription on its base. This inscription was to prove an unwitting invocation, opening up the crypt beneath the altar, and awakening Jorla, as Baron Almo, from the dead. He was to rise from the crypt then, and walk. It was at this point that the scene would terminate, due to Jorla's strange absence. The setting was magnificently handled. Kincaid and I took our places beside Director Bleskind as the shot opened. Sylvia Channing walked out on the set. The signals were given, lights flashed, and the action began. It was pantomimic. Sylvia walked across the cobwebbed floor, noticed the altar, examined it. She stooped to read the inscription, then whispered it aloud. There was a drone as the opening of the altar crypt was mechanically begun. The altar swung aside and the black, gaping pit, was revealed. The upper camera swung to Sylvia's face. She was to stare at the crypt in horror, and she did it most magnificently. In the picture, she would be watching Jawler emerge. Fleskine prepared to give the signal to cut action. Then, something emerged from the crypt. It was dead, that thing, that horror with a mask of faceless flesh. Its lean body was clothed in rotting rags— and on its chest was a bloody crucifix, inverted, carved out of dead flesh. The eyes blazed loathsomely. It was Baron Almo, rising from the dead, and it was Carl Jawler. The makeup was perfect. His eyes were dead, just as in the other film. The lips seemed shredded again, the mouth even more ghastly in its slitted blackness, and the touch of the bloody crucifix was immense. Bless Kai nearly swallowed his cigar when Jawler appeared. Quickly he controlled himself, silently signalled the men to proceed with the shooting. We strained forward, watching every move, but Les Kincaid's eyes held a wonder akin to my own. Jawler was acting as never before. He moved slowly, as a corpse must move. As he raised himself from the crypt, each tiny effort seemed to cause him utter agony. The scene was soundless. Sylvia had fainted. But Jawler's lips moved— and we heard a faint whispering murmur, which heightened the horror. Now the grisly cadaver was almost half out of the crypt. It strained upward, still murmuring. The bloody crucifix of flesh gleamed redly on the chest. I thought of the one found on the body of the murdered foreign director, Fritz Omen, and realised where Jawler had gotten the idea. The corpse strained up. It was to rise now, up and then, with a sudden rictus, the body stiffened and slid back into the crypt. Who screamed first I do not know, but the screaming continued after the prop-boys had rushed to the crypt and looked down at what lay within. When I reached the brink of the pit, I screamed too, for it was utterly empty. 5. I wish there were nothing more to tell— The papers never knew. The police hushed things up. The studio was silent, and the production was dropped immediately. But matters did not stop there. There was a sequel to that hideous horror on stage four. Kincaid and I cornered Blesskind. There was no need of any explanation. How could what we had just seen be explained in any sane way? Jawler had disappeared. No one had let him into the studio. No makeup man had given him his attention. Nobody had seen him enter the crypt. He had appeared in the scene, then disappeared. The crypt was empty. These were the facts. Kincaid told Blesskind what to do. The film was developed immediately, though two of the technicians fainted. We three sat in the projection booth and watched the morning's rushes flicker across the screen. The soundtrack was specially dubbed in. That scene— Sylvia walking and reading the incantation, the pit opening, and God, when nothing emerged. Nothing but that great red scar suspended in mid-air, that great inverted crucifix cut into bleeding flesh, no jawler visible at all, that bleeding cross in the air, and then the mumbling. Jawler, the thing, whatever it was, had mumbled a few syllables on emerging from the crypt. The soundtrack had picked them up— and we couldn't see anything but that scar, yet we heard Jawler's voice now coming from nothingness. We heard what he kept repeating as he fell back into the crypt. It was an address in Topanga Canyon. The lights flickered on, and it was good to see them. Kincaid phoned the police and directed them to the address given on the soundtrack. We waited, the three of us, in Kincaid's office, waiting for the police call. We drank, but did not speak. Each of us was thinking of Carl Jawler, the devil worshipper, who had betrayed his faith, of his fear of vengeance. We thought of the director's death and the bloody crucifix on his chest, remembered Jawler's disappearance, and then that ghastly ghost thing on the screen, the bloody thing that hung in midair as Jawler's voice groaned the address. The phone rang. I picked it up. It was the police department. They gave their report. I fainted. It was several minutes before I came to—it was several more minutes before I opened my mouth and spoke. They found Carl Jawler's body at the address given on the screen. I whispered. He was lying dead in an old shack up in the hills. He had been murdered—there was a bloody cross inverted on his chest. They think it was the work of some fanatics, because the place was filled with books on sorcery and black magic. They say… I paused. Kincaid's eyes commanded, Go on. They say, I murmured, that Jawler had been dead for at least three days. Hello, ladies and gents. Ian here. Be sure to pop on over to our YouTube channel, or Facebook page, for regular updates. If you'd like to support our work, please consider taking a look at our Patreon or Bandcamp pages, or search for us on Audible. You'll find links to everything on our website, horrorbabble.com forward slash links.